No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. We heard this loud noise in the background and it almost sounded like a dinosaur. And we went up onto the deck and we looked down uh, by the curio shop of John. There was two male hippos going at each other and almost trying to fight, but it, it never got quite that far. How a quiet night by a fire in Africa was interrupted by two male hippos. That's just one of the tales from Kathy and Martin Kays, two of the leading travel experience experts on the planet. They own six luxury safari camps, one of which was voted a top 50 hotel in the world, located in the heart of the Akavango Delta in Botswana, Africa. Their story right now, I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. Kathy and Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you. I'm so excited to have you both on the show. I've known you for 14 years and have visited you many times at your camps in Botswana. You all own six luxury safari camps in the heart of the Okavango Delta. The pandemic has obviously impacted everyone's travel experience, your own included, as you operate this business. You know, what have you learned throughout this process and are there positives that you've taken away from it? I think the positive would be that you learn to operate in a completely different manner that you've always been used to. So it teaches you new aspects of the business to operate better and smarter. Yeah, so we become experts at cutting costs while still maintaining the present presence because we don't want to lose track of the conservation history that we have. So there's there's certain elements that have to be sustained, like anti-poaching and um, checking out what's going on with the wildlife and trying to keep them all still interested because it's it's quite amazing how quickly animals can get unaccustomed to vehicles. So we have to have our vehicles moving around and spend a bit of time with the animals so that they still think that life's pretty much as it should be. We'd hate to resume our safaris and suddenly find that the animals are all skittish and don't want to hang around for photographs. Uh, no, it's, I mean, like, that's a fair thing to consider that I, that I think most of us would normally never even think about. And, and you mentioned, you know, anti-poaching, you know, and I know Martin, you and I have talked a lot about that on the visits that I've had, you know, over to Botswana with you. I mean, is it, is it tougher now to, to control that given that, um, there, there aren't as many visitors coming over at this particular moment because of COVID and hopefully that all changes this coming summer with vaccines and all, but has it been tougher to, to manage that, you know, what that, what can potentially occur with poachers or has it been roughly still the same challenge? It has been tougher because you're in a much wilder environment. There's less traffic all around the, the reserve that we operate. So I was there in early January, and most of the roads that we typically operate on are closed over by the good rains that we've had this year. So for if a poacher were to come into the area, we'd have very little knowledge of them actually being there unless we found a carcass or seen them personally. 
Right. So what we do do is we try and get up there ourselves as often as we can, and we drive around and we look for tracks and anything unusual. And luckily, we haven't picked up on anything ourselves, but I know we found evidence of it in other areas further south. So it's just something that we are aware of. Right. And try and keep tabs on. Well, and it's and it's a wild environment, even with the dogs in the house, as I can hear. So it's, it's you know you you guys live in a in a in a wild, unruly place, and and you know from my experiences, and that's what makes it beautiful, um, but it's also a bit of a challenge at times. Um, you know, Kathy, you, you mentioned a little bit about history just real quick when you were talking a minute ago, and you know, reading the history of your family, and I know at at Jow Camp there's this beautiful library, and it and it tells a lot about the history of your families and and coming to Botswana. Um, to me, it's like visualizing an Indiana Jones film. There's this excitement of, you know, entering an uncharted territory, and then there's this suspense of what comes next. And then there's also like this deep recorded history uh, that's real and tangible. And also there's this like, you know, dash of magic that's, you know, at least from a visitor's perspective that you feel. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have this conversation today. And, and and just for the listeners and their understanding, Kathy and Martin are our mother and son. Um, and so with that, let's, let's start with the fact that I love the Akavango Delta so much. And I consider it my second home just from the standpoint of how it feels in my soul. You know, and, and actually not too far from the Akavango is, is um, arguably the recorded um, birthplace of man, correct? That's right, it is. And, and so, and, and maybe that's part of it. I don't know, but it feels like a natural place to, to want to be. Um, and, and I find myself thinking about it all the time. And I'm so thankful to, to met you both on my first journey there. Martin, you know, like I, I truly consider you family and a brother. And, and we, we've talked about that together so many times because we just, we met and it just felt like I've known you my whole life. I don't know how, but I've known you. Um, and then Kathy, you've always been so welcoming to my wife and I, and, um, and, and Kathy, both you and your husband, David, come from families with a, a really rich history in the heart of Africa. Um, David was obviously born in, in what's now known as Botswana, and, and then you're from South Africa. Um, before we get into that, in your own words, you know, each of you, if you want to take, take a turn, you know, tell, let's t- tell everyone, where is the Akavango Delta located? Um, what is it, and what makes it such a special place? So... From my perspective, I mean, I grew up in Botswana in a little town called Maun. It's right at the south or southern part of the Okavango Delta. And as a child, I'd spend many weekends traveling into the Okavango camping before all these beautiful lodges were built. And it's always been a special place in my heart because I've always found it to be one of the last wild places on earth. And that's why I really enjoyed being out in the Jar Reserve because you just never know what you're going to see around the next corner and you never know what you're going to see on any given day. Yeah, so the, the Akavanga Delta is in the northern part of Botswana. It's um, fed by, it's an inland delta and it's fed by rivers that come down from the Angolan highlands and bring an annual flood. And our flood usually arrives after, towards the end of our rainy season. And so we are flooded, fully flooded in winter, whereas our rainy season is summer. So it's, it's quite a unique environment. We get more water when we don't have rain. And um, it's, 
a flat, very flat area with no mountains and hills. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about Africa or a safari, I think for most people, you, you have these images in your head of what you've mostly seen maybe on Discovery Channel or, or another nature show, National Geographic, let's say, of these, these vast, dry desert savannas, right? Um, but when you come to the Akavango, it's not like that at all. It's though as you're in this really lush water world, you know, where there are dry areas, but you have all this water that flows and, and it's, it's, it's not a dry savanna and it's the like the cleanest water that you could possibly see. It's as clean as here in the United States. You know, if you go to Lake Tahoe or you go up into the lakes of Canada where you can see 50 feet deep or 70 feet deep in the water, these waters aren't that deep, but they're that clear and crisp. It's, it's as though it just came out of your faucet. To start off with, I think one must first say that the Akavango is surrounded by the Kalahari Desert. And what we'd call it is the, the jewel of the Kalahari because it's so pristine and beautiful. And it's got plentiful islands that are formed by termite mounds that create these unique um, spots all over the delta of lush vegetation. And then these uh, channels follow around these islands and through the vegetation that surrounds these islands filter the water and that's what makes it so clear and clean. But let's jump ahead now to 1999 and Kathy had mentioned about when you first started to run the camps and 99 you all you and David secured the rights to be entrusted with this large concession in the Akavango Delta called the Jow concession. Um, it's over 60,000 hectares of land which for us here in the States to translate that is over 150,000 acres um, of land, which is a tremendous <laughs> amount of, of property to explore. Um, would you like to share the experience of building those first camps in the Delta? I assume it wasn't a simple task. I mean, I, I've, I've followed just the new rebuild. That wasn't simple. And, and even today in today and in, in say 2021, but um but in 1999, when you were first opening up these experiences and building them, what was that like? Well, you know, in 1998, we had an opportunity to tender for this concession, the Dow Reserve. And we were up against such incredible competition, people that were well-known in the industry and had years and years of experience. And there was David and myself, who, although we'd had a lot of bush experience and David had grown up in a hotel and we understood hospitality because we loved traveling and we knew what was good service and what wasn't. And so we had high expectations for things and we decided to tender for this. And against all odds, we won the tender. And I always put that down to nothing wins like passion does. We were passionate about wanting to be there, wanting to conserve that area of Akalanga. Our motives for getting into that industry were purely for conservation purposes because we had always had this free access to the Akavango Delta and that things were changing. The areas were getting tendered out for exclusive use and our access was being cut off. And we wanted to retain what we had grown up with for our children and our grandchildren's benefit. And um, so we went and we, once we won the tender, we then had to put our plans into action quite quickly. And um, we developed 
we built the first premier camp in Botswana because we had known with all the competition that we were up against in that tender process that we had better be, we had to be better than everybody else. So we, we designed, we got this architect called Silvio Rick and his, and his partner, Leslie Carstens, and they designed our jar camp for us. And it was pretty much Indiana Jones, like you, you mentioned that earlier on. Um, it was a surprise around every corner, a great level of luxury, everything beautifully constructed um, out of wood and thatch and canvas because you're not allowed any permanent structures in Archivango Delta, so no brick and mortar is permitted. And we built it in amongst the trees. And Martin at that stage was a young boy. He was just starting off at high school. And we got him involved in climbing trees with us to imagine where we would put the buildings and what the view would look like. And we built these very high structures. The main area, top floor was six meters above the ground. Well, I, was, well, I think it's important to, for people that don't know, these structures, they're not permanent structures like you mentioned, but they're also raised above the ground so that the animal life can, you know, they can pass through underneath as they need. Oh, yeah. And so they built with gun poles, like high up into the tree canopy. And there we all were climbing the trees and having a look at what we felt, with how we felt we could build it and where we felt things could fit in nicely. And so we were all involved together with that process. And um, we built Jar in a quite remarkable three months because we needed to get our cash flow moving. We didn't have access to a lot of funding. We were self-funded. And um, we opened it up and then we initially we received quite a lot of criticism from agents in the market who said, people don't need all this. They just need a tent on the ground. We, this is over the top. We're doing things too lavishly and this isn't what the wilderness market or wildlife market is all about. But we stood our ground and we built a market and it became very much in demand. And so all the other companies followed suit and built their own premier camps or their own camps to that level of luxury. And it was a huge learning curve for us to, to get this business off the ground. But also we had to train all the local people to produce the level of service that we required. So we knocked our heads a little bit in the beginning, but we, we got going and we built a very successful business. And we, we also at the same time built four other camps and they were all at a lower level of luxury, more classic safari kind of camp. And so we, we were able to reach all the different segments of the market. You know, Kathy, we've talked before. I know you spend so much of your time on all aspects of, of the camps, from everything from design to housekeeping to menu strategy. And, and, and visitors, well, the people that come and stay at these camps are unique in their own right. You know, I mean, they're unique individuals that, that want these really different experiences than most people typically would take. And for some of those people, those are life-changing or, or maybe once-in-a-lifetime experiences for many. But you also have to manage heads of state, famous actors, really well-known business people, musicians. And I don't know if you can share any of those personal stories. I mean, I, I know I've, 
you've shared with me a lot of things, but, but how do you manage all the staff, all these going ons of having to procure and bring in supplies as well as provide this one of a kind of experience to people that have a really high expectation that they get treated really, really well. You know, like I told you in the beginning, I was always a discerning traveler. I always expect to have a high level of expectation on a trip. So I've been able to coach that into our staff quite well and um, to get the staff to understand that these people have traveled from very far and they, and they know, they know what's good and they know what's substandard. And it's very important that we do everything right. So we focus on attention to detail very strongly. And um, we, we try very hard to make sure that we tick all the boxes of good service, good food, um, be well, beautiful decor, beautiful interiors, beautiful setting. But at the end of the day, the guests that are alive are people. They're all individual people. And we recognize that in them. And we allow them to come there and just enjoy the environment. And at the end of the day, it's not that difficult because people arrive and they get so blown away by what they see that we just do simple things like go and set up an, an activity out in the bush. And um, we, at Jar, we can set up very lavish gym lounges out in the bush. And the guests just arrive and they'll be on a game drive and they go around a corner and suddenly there's this magnificent setup with carpets and chairs and tables and drinks. And it's like they're on a real safari and they love it. And just by, we, we talk, call everybody by name, by first name. So we're on a first name basis with everybody in camp. And that just also lets, makes people let their guard down. We value people's privacy highly. So although we've had, as you say, statesmen and musicians and actors and high profile guests, we don't talk about them. We don't ever take a photograph of anybody. And um, we just let everybody come and let their hair down and enjoy themselves. And we are obviously very mindful of everybody's safety, so we'll take care of all situations. And they just love it. Just well, love it's, such, it's, it's such a personal experience. And it's also, you know, I think for me, it was, it was great because I've gotten to know you all so well. And, and Martin, being out in the bush and at the camps with you and, and your two children that are very young, it's a, when you talked about safety, it, it's very safe for kids being there as well. Like, I mean, so last summer we were going to bring our kids over for the first time. And obviously COVID got in the way like it did for everyone, for everything in life. But hopefully this summer when we're scheduled to come back, you know, the kids are coming and, and it'd be a great experience for them too. Um, but I think it's great how it's such an intimate experience for everyone. And it's so personal and they can just be them in that small environment, right? It doesn't, it's not as though they're at some huge resort. It's, these are, these are smaller environments. In fact, you know, I mentioned that you had six camps. You have Jow, which we've talked about a lot. We have, you have Katswani, Jakana, Tubu Tree, Little Tubu, and then Pilo Camp. And, and all of them are, they're not large places. I mean, these are intimate experiences with the land and the wildlife. And so therefore by design, it's more personal. 
Um, yeah. You know, the, the average number of guests at any time at these camps is, is what? So people can understand how intimate this is. The smallest camp is Little Tubi, which only takes six guests. Mm-hmm. Then we have Jakana, Pilo, and Quetzani that take 10 guests. And Jao that takes 18 guests. And Tubu that takes 20, 16 guests. Sorry. So Tubu and Little Tubu can be booked together to make 22 guests if it's a larger party. But that's the maximum size of party that we can take. And that's what's so beautiful about the experience, too, is because you you feel part of your environment, not part of a resort like you would in a typical vacation experience. So like in our experience, we've had some high-profile guests that have come and booked out the entire camp and filled it with their own group. So they have all the privacy that they need in the world. But we also have had high-profile guests that have come, either just two people or four people, But because the camps are so small and intimate, they end up being very comfortable with the other few guests that are there and have a great time. At JAR, we can really give people a great deal of privacy. They can stay in their suite. They can be served their meals there. They don't actually have to go down to the main area, but they all do want to go there because it is so beautiful and it's got that gallery with the big giraffe skeleton in the in the bottom of our museum and the top area with the library and all the history. So people do like to spend a lot of time in the main area. And we also well, have that iconic swimming pool with the, each room has its own pool, but the, the main area swimming pool with, with its kind of bird nest gazebo out on the floodplain, it's rather spectacular and guests love spending time there. Oh, that and and I've I've been fortunate to experience that and it's it's awesome it truly is awesome, and funny enough when I was there last you know talking about special guests coming in I remember you all were potentially going to have um, I think it was the president of Botswana was uh, maybe in process of maybe coming to visit, but on this particular day a government helicopter like a military helicopter landed out just beyond you know that pool, um, and and it was one of his primary you know, diplomats and some diplomats and some of his, uh, I guess, security detail that they were coming to check everything out for his visit, which is really exciting. And, and I, you know, the, the young guy that was his, I guess, primary, um, one of his chiefs of staff, um, you know, I was, I remember talking to him and just for a little while and I asked him if he was ever going to be president of Botswana. And he's like, God willing, you know, hopefully, (laughs) you know, like one day. So who knows? I might've met the future president of Botswana there. It's so great. I think the important thing is that we, we always have to operate like a very flexible structure. No two trips are the same. And we've got to adapt to everyone's needs, whether it's a private dinner in their room or a lavish sundown in the middle of nowhere. Well, and that's and that's like that's the great part of the experience is there are there's so much variety. I mean, at Jakana you have I mean not Jakana, but at Jal, you have you could be really at the top end of, of what you would consider premium, although you know, I've been fortunate to visit, you know, all these camps and in all of them feel premium, you know, even even Pilo camp, which is more of a on the ground sort of fishing village esque type camp. But it still has that premium feel to it, even though it's it's um, more more of a classic feel of, a, of an experience. I love that all the camps are different. Yeah. I love making sure that they all remain different. And, you know, we, we've 
encourage our staff to really pay attention to our guests and their needs. And based on what they hear the guests talking about to them or what they notice the guests like to drink, we, we really try hard to personalize service to a guest. And like that's where Martin said, we, we try very hard to meet their needs and, and give them what they would like to get. You know, you, you, can, you can have guests that say they'd love to see a lion kill, and unfortunately that's not something that can be provided on tap. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, you can't force the lions to go do a hunt. Um, but but I, I have been able to see one, and it was amazing. You know, in any business, you have tough challenges, right? Um, it's not if, it's always when. And no matter what you do, you're always going to find some situation. Can you share a situation where, you know, it was just a tough situation with a guest? And what did you have to do to overcome, you know, handling that moment? I think rather than talking about a tough situation with a guest, I think one of the toughest situations we experienced during our operation is... Um, a couple of years ago, we had one of the largest floods ever, and we lost at least how was it? At least half of our airstrip was lost to floods, but we couldn't shut down our operation, so we had to sandbag all along the edge of the airstrip and pump the water off it to enable planes to get in. And we we had many other operators actually come in and see how we did it, just so they could learn the uniqueness of our operation of trying to just keep things going constantly. Yeah, because it's not as though like someone's traveling from, you know, they're coming from, you know, China or America or Europe and they're coming to have this great experience. You can't just say, well, hey, it's shut down because the the airstrip flooded. Yeah, we got some really unique photographs of elephant, of airplanes coming in over the waterway and then landing just on the other side of the sandbanks. And Mike Martin said we lost half the airstrip. So we were down to 500 meters which is quite tough for some of these aeroplanes to take off on. You can land on that if you're doing it properly, but taking off is a little bit harder. And um, we managed. We managed to keep going and slowly, bit by bit, with moving our sandbanks, we reclaimed airstrip until we got the whole airstrip back again. But that process took us a good two months. But, um, yeah, we certainly have had many challenges over the years, and at that same time, Jar, the Jar Island flooded. So guests, we had to park the vehicle. We built a, we built a vehicle jetty quickly um, in camp so that the vehicles could go and park up against the jetty and the guests could just come down the walkway and climb onto the vehicle without having to be in water. But for the rest of the camp, everybody had to walk in water. And we, we've, always, we've always led by example. So we've always done things ourselves so that we can't have our staff thinking that we're being unreasonable or expecting too much from them. So at that particular time, we were staying in camp and helping do everything ourselves, helping our staff see that everything was possible, that we could carry on operating. And part of that meant that we had to keep the pumps running on the airstrip all night long. So in the middle of the night, we'd have to go and refuel the pumps. So we all took turns to go and do that. And because land was at such a premium, dry land was at such a premium, we had this male lion that just hung around the airstrip continuously. So we had to make a rule that two people had to go to refuel the pumps, not one, so that one person could watch out for the lion while the other person refueled the pumps. 
And these are things that guests never have to experience because they're in the safety of, of the, uh, you, you know, of the, of the villas and everything that they're in. But meanwhile, you are on the airstrip at two in the morning, you know, pumping water off of it when, when something like this happens and there's a male lion that's looking for food. <laughs> at, at that same time, we had the, the flying charter companies come in to walk the airstrip on the ground and make sure that it was safe that they could land there. So we had a plane come in bringing the, the senior management to come and check out the airstrip and David and I were there to greet them. And we walked along the airstrip the whole length of that 500 meters that we were using. And at the same time, there was the lion lying by the windsock. And we had a game bureau with guests parked watching the lion. And there we are walking along the runway. And it felt so wrong. And I felt so guilty about it that when I went back to jail that night, I went and found those guests. And I said, look, I just wanted to tell you that that is not normal. We don't normally walk past lions. <laughs> Well, especially when our guests are out on activity, but we have to keep operating and the lion's staying there and we need to make sure that we can operate and keep the airstrip open. So that's why we had to walk past your sighting. That's funny. I mean, you, you know, you always, every, every time I visited, there's always some unique thing that happens, right? And, and um, you know, that's, I think that's what's special about coming to visit a place that's really truly like Martin, like you said, one of the last wild places on earth that exists that you can truly be in the wild. Um, and it's amazing what you all have done. And, you know, I wish we could talk about this for days and we probably should do a follow up, you know, on this at some point and maybe make it a video cast as opposed to just audio so that people could experience it. And I'll selfishly force myself. You can twist my arm to come visit so we can make that happen. <laughs> maybe we'll do it this summer, assuming we come over. Um, but, but as we end, a few rapid fire questions for you all, like what's your favorite, I know you're going to have a lot of them, but what's your favorite personal experience or thing that you love the most about the Akavango Delta? I think for me, it's definitely the sunsets and just being in the middle of nowhere, having a sundowner, as we'd call it, having a drink, watching the sun go down and just watching what goes past. For me, it's the operational side of things. I love planning operations. So I love going and finding new areas for the guides to take the guests to or, or checking out the, the game situation or thinking about building a new hide and, and things like that. And that gets me out, which is what I love the most. And I love walking out in the bush. And I've had lots of experience, funny experiences over the years with that. But that's not a long story. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just being in the bush and seeing elephants. I, I have a strong affinity with elephants and I love talking to them. And that calms me down and it calms them down. And I've had very many close encounters with elephants when I've been on foot and I haven't wanted to meet up with an elephant, but suddenly one comes along and there's nothing else that you can really do except try and talk down the situation. So, yeah, it's been a great experience in that aspect, just being with the wildlife and being out there. Yeah, I know I've, I've, I've told you guys this before, and I always tell everyone this. It's the one place that I've ever visited that I feel so part of the world and also so insignificant at the same time. And, mm -hmm. it's, and it's a good feeling, you know, like you, and you have to feel it. You have to feel it. You can't really explain that experience as much as you just need to be in the moment 
So I'm, I'm sure you all have lots of, of favorite experiences with wildlife and, and, you know, in my own personal experiences, it's been just being able to spend time and, and really as much time as you want. It could be an hour, it could be two hours or more. It could be a few minutes with a leopard or, you know, with a lion with their cubs or, um, you, you know, the last time I was over, I was able to, to, to see the Pell's fish owl, which I guess is a, a very rare and difficult owl to, to experience and find. And we were able to find its nest and we could see that there were, there were eggs in it. We saw the owl. So just having like some really unique experiences, um, you know, do you have some of your own that are your favorites? Okay, I'll, I'll talk about it. Your, your second visit to Jow Camp, Steve. I don't know if you quite remember when we were sitting having dinner one evening and we heard this loud noise in the background and almost sounded like a dinosaur. And we went up onto the deck and we looked down uh, by the curious shop of Jow and there was two male hippos going at each other and almost trying to fight, but it, it never got quite that far. But it was just an amazing experience to be, to be able to sit on the deck from the safety of, of the height that the decks were at and look down on these two male hippos and appreciate the size of them and the noises that they make. It was just a, a real special moment that we both Well, I, I, I remember it well, cause I was there with my dad and we had just made a fire with you. And then we're, we're just sort of standing there and we hear what sounded like a runaway Volkswagen going through camp. And we look down and those two hippos are, are fighting and, and all the, you know, all the guests kind of came out from like the main area and we all just stood up on the, on the walkway. That's a good, you know, whatever, maybe feet wise, 15, 20 feet above the ground. And we're able to watch down and see essentially what did sound like two dinosaurs, you know, having an argument. And it was fantastic. I think it went on for a good hour and a half or so. Yeah, I think, I think you still got a good video of that on YouTube. I have, I have a great video on YouTube of that. I'll have to share it out. <laughs> so Steve, um, what I love about it is that the way the animals get accustomed to being in a camp environment, and it seems like they seek out the camp environment in a lot of instances. So we've had experiences of elephants coming and going to sleep next to the office and just lying there in the morning and snoring away for two hours, and we've got to carefully step around them. And obviously that's back of house where, where the guests don't come. And we all have to learn to, to operate in and around animals. One of the other great privileges that we've had is leopards over the years who bring their cubs into camp to be babysat. So they'll leave their, their cubs in camp and we'll know where they are and we'll avoid that area and close it off to guests. And meanwhile, there the, the cub is, like in a, in a bathroom or on a deck of a room or once behind the couch sleeping in Quetzani. And um, so we have to just be vigilant and make sure that everybody else stays away so that nobody frightens the animal. But then also one of the other privileges is the, the mongoose, which is a, a small predator, small little carnivore that, that lives in a troop and, is, and we've got a large troop that lives in Jarkan. And these little animals just provide incredible entertainment. So one of the things that they do, which we've noticed over the years, is they warn us when there's a very bad storm coming because they change their behavior and they come inside the main area or inside on top of the decks and they try and find a place to hide to sleep. So that could be inside a couch 
It could be if somebody's left the door open, they'll get inside a room and they just want to stay in there and we have to try and get them out safely So and, and encourage them to rather make a place under the, the main area rather than inside. And then without any doubt that night, we'll get a massive rainstorm. So it's incredible. Yeah, I can't wait for my I can't wait for my children to have the experience with the mongoose because they are fun to uh, to to have experiences with. Well, Kathy, what you just said about the wildlife—I mean, look—you're in close proximity, and that's part of the beauty of this. But I've also always recognized how vigilant and and um, and careful the entire staff always is with making sure that when they walk you to your rooms, they check everything and they give you really good direction on here's where you can go and here's where you shouldn't go. Um, so that it is, it is a safe place. And I've always felt extremely safe and it makes the experience wonderful. Um, and it's just things that you, when you leave there, you, you desire to go back. I would be shocked of, of anyone that's ever been and, and not wanted to go back and have, and have more of these experiences in life. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And we do all take note of what's going on around us. So we, we listen to the other animals, the birds and the monkeys, and that gives us warning of what, if there could be a predator on the island or if there's any danger around. And then that makes us all hypervigilant. Or just the, song, the songs of the frogs at night. Like, a, mm-hmm. you know, that they, it's just like this ongoing chant and song that you can hear. It's just beautiful. And, and the rooms are very well constructed. So everybody's perfectly safe in the rooms and they raise high off the ground. So that pro- provides fantastic viewpoints, but you living actually it's safety well you are thanks for thanks for taking the time to to talk about all this today it's um martin is there is there any way that somebody if they wanted to learn more would um be able to find out more about about your camps so yeah we we, we're on instagram and and facebook um you can search us on the jar reserve and you'll see us there and then if you're interested in doing any bookings there's you can search safari stays I think you'll share the link on. And we'll, yeah, screen. we'll be sure to share um, share the contact information um, about this um, at the end. But I appreciate you both taking the time today. Thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing you both soon. Thanks, Steve. That's great. Thanks, Steve. I'm Steve Parker Jr. I want to thank you for listening to Parker on Tap. Whether your vision of an African safari is more National Geographic documentary, Robert Redford in the film Out of Africa, or more the hit song from Toto, then yes, Africa offers all of that and so, so, so much more. For me and my personal experiences in Botswana with Martin and Kathy Cage, each trip has always offered a new perspective. And for me personally, as I'd shared, it makes me feel so close to the planet and such a part of it unlike any other place ever has. I hope you appreciated this podcast because I sincerely appreciate you listening. Please share it with a friend or on social. And if you could take a moment to rate it, that'd be great too. Please visit parkerontap.com. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. 
I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. 